if you are visiting or you're listening online and you're trying to figure out where we're at, uh, we've covered for uh, several months, we talked about God's providence over nature, God's providence over birth and life and death and sickness. We talked about God's providence over uh, sin, God's providence over Satan, God's providence over just about everything you can think of, uh, God works all things according to the counsel of His will, uh, Ephesians 1.11 says. So it's all-encompassing, God's sovereignty. And then we started the second part of our series on providence, which is God's providence over salvation. And so we've been dealing with uh, issues that certainly have been controversial for really ever since the birth of the church. Uh, so dealing with, with issues of God's sovereignty and human responsibility uh, inside of, of salvation itself. If you have a Bible, it'll be a minute before we get here, but if you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 near the back of your New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1, we hope to get there in just a second. Greg, could you pray for us? And then uh, we're going to do a quick review of some things the guys covered last Sunday on foreknowledge, and then we'll look at some other, uh, some other uh, questions that come up on this topic. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for another opportunity to dive into these very weighty matters. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would be humble, and yet, Lord, we would not shy away from what we believe your word teaches. Lord, so please help us speak with conviction, with confidence. Uh, Lord, with graciousness, where there are points of disagreement with other believers. Uh, but Lord, we pray that above all, we'd be submissive to your word uh, and that we would exalt you and our Savior and His perfect, sufficient work for us. Um, and so, God, we just commit our hearts and minds to You, especially as we think about unconditional election and foreknowledge and ways that people have objected to this. Lord, please help us in these few moments to, uh, to give clear answers in light of what Your Word teaches. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, uh, these two guys and Papa Fred uh, covered uh, the issue of God's foreknowledge. And just, just, just as a word of review about that, and, and I want to hear from you guys on this again, um, one of the objections to what we've been teaching is that God's election is based on foreknowledge, and therefore, God's election of who to save is based on, Arminians would argue, uh, foreseen faith. So that God looks down the corridors of time and he sees who would believe and then God chooses those people and he looks down the corridors of time and sees who would reject them and then he passes over those individuals. And superficially that may sound like, okay, that, that seems compelling. Uh, you have foreknowledge first and predestination second in Romans 8, so it sounds like it's God knowing ahead of time and then that's what he bases his choice on. And just to review, uh, Greg went through a lot of these texts, I'll just put them real quick on the screen just to remind you of these, how the word know is used regarding God and people throughout the whole Bible. Just, if you, just listen again quickly to all these verses. Now, Adam knew uh, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So as you guys mentioned last week, this is a covenant knowing, a covenant love um, that you see. Later in the same chapter, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, knowing they're clearly taking on more than just knowing about, but knowing in a covenantal love relationship. Genesis 4, 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. In the New Testament, we see the same thing. When Joseph woke from sleep, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So do we see this throughout both Testaments? To know is a covenant love, an intimate, deep commitment of covenant love. And then as they looked at last week, Amos 3, 2 is so clear, I think. God says to Israel, you only have I, is it Yadah, the yep. word for no? You only have I known, which is clearly a covenant relationship, right? God is only in a covenant with one nation, it's Israel, right? You only have I known 
of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. And one scholar, S.M. Bell, says, no here and elsewhere should be understood against the specific background of the covenantal relationship between God and people. And the covenantal notion implies, among other things, a commitment. Look at Genesis 18. God says to Abraham, this is amazing. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Look at this. ESV says, for I have chosen him. You know what the word is in Hebrew? Yada. I have known him, literally. So most translations translate yada and choose in this verse because that's what it means to choose to enter into a covenant relationship with. That's what it means to know. When God knows Abraham, he chooses him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And I love this one. This is the closest you get to foreknowledge in the Old Testament, I think. Okay, I'm just going to point, I got to just point at the screen on this. I, I, this is great. Jeremiah 1, 5. God says to Jeremiah the prophet, so look, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Is that foreknowing? Before I formed you, I knew you. That's foreknowledge, right? In the Old Testament. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now look, here's the parallelism. Remember, two ways of saying the same thing. Before you were born, I set you apart, consecrated you. And then here's another parallel. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Do you see how those three lines interpret each other? For God to before know, to foreknow Jeremiah meant more than just knowing about Jeremiah. It meant more than just God knew Jeremiah would believe. That's not what it meant. It meant that God was before birth setting him apart and appointing him to a specific task. That's what it means for God to know you before you're born. He has set you apart for a specific task. He's appointed you before birth for some job. Do you see? So foreknowledge is God choosing in a covenantal love setting to do something with you. That, that, that's, that's the way the word is used here. The New Testament, real quick, just the word know. 1 Corinthians 8.3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Doesn't mean he knows about you. It means he knows you in a covenant sense. Galatians 4.9, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back? So to be a Christian is to be known by God and to know God. It's a covenant love. It's a, it's a commitment. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So to, know, to not know God means you're not a believer. And knowing is this intimate thing. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, don't act in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Those who are controlled by sexual sin show that they don't know God in a covenant-saving way. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So you can just see it over and over. Matthew 7, y'all mentioned this last week. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How about this one? All things have been handed over to me, Jesus said, by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you see foreknowledge and predestination go hand in hand in a text like that. John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, Acts 2.23, Greg mentioned this last week. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified him. Does God's foreknowledge here mean he just knew that Jesus would one day be crucified? Or does it mean God chose that one day Jesus would be crucified? It means more than he was aware that one day free will decisions would lead to an, an outcome. No, God planned this. That's how he foreknew it. It was God's plan. So with all that uh, in, in mind, and there's, there's other texts we can look at, uh, let's look at 1 Peter. And Greg, can you lead us through this text on this issue? 
Yes, so 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, if you're not there, please turn. Uh, let's begin in the very beginning, uh, in verse 1, and we're going to make a connection between verse 1 and verse 20, okay? So, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. And so here, it's, it's clear Peter is saying to those who are elect, cut, cut some of the stuff out, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And it might say, oh, see, look, there it is, elections according to foreknowledge. But again, what is foreknowledge? We, we do not want to assume or presuppose that that term has an just out there definition that it means to, to foresee ahead of time. Okay, we, we can't do that. And here's the thing. Peter actually uses the same word a little bit later. And so we're going to let Peter tell us how to use this word foreknow and foreknowledge. Look uh, later in chapter, chapter 1. Uh, let's start in verse 18. He says, "...knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." And listen to this. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. And we'll just, we'll stop there. So when Peter says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, does that mean that the father had to foresee that Jesus was going to come and die for people? He didn't know it was going to happen until he foresaw it. And therefore he based his plan on the fact that somehow Jesus was going to come and die for sinners. And again, we say, well, that just sounds ridiculous to say it that way. But if we're going to import the wrong definition of foreknowledge into this, that's exactly what we have to say. God foreknew Jesus would come, meaning he saw ahead of time that Jesus was going to come, and therefore he chose Jesus to be the Savior. He didn't know that until he saw it by looking ahead. And we'd say, wait a minute, no, 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 no. That, that, they can't mean that there because God's the one who planned to send Jesus before Jesus came. God didn't have to learn about that. That was God's plan. And so again, if, if that's the case, then to say that Jesus was foreknown, I mean, he was appointed, he was chosen, he was all those things um, before it happened. And so Peter's saying, look, that's what the word foreknown means, chosen, appointed, um, loved even. And so go back to chapter one, verse two, when he says we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, that means God chose us because before time began, he set his love on us. He appointed us to be his people. And see the connection there. We're not going to take the same word and just completely import different meanings into it. Let the text of Scripture define itself. And if Peter's consistent, and he is, and how he uses this word foreknown in verse 20 has to affect how we understand what he's doing in verse 2. And here's the other thing. We've already seen the incredible consistency of the Bible from the Old Testament through the New Testament on this word no, on this idea of foreknowledge. And so why? Why would Peter just out of the blue change that in verse 2? He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. And we covered a little bit of this the other day, but just one more time. Um, the golden chain, Romans let's, 8. Let's all 29. go there. Let's go there. Is that Romans 8 to 29. Yeah, it's just so huge. For those whom he foreknew, and we, Greg's just helped us and, and Mark to get the idea of what that really means. He also predestined me conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So you can see, and this is, I think, super exciting, that the exact number of people that were foreknown are predestined, right? And that exact same number are called. And the same number that are called are justified, same number are justified, are glorified, going to be in heaven someday. And so that happened from eternity past to eternity future, all in two verses, right there. A lot of ground covered. But that, the, the choices are, did God foreknow everybody? No, because down the line, not all are going to be in heaven. Did he foreknow nobody? No, because some people, right? Narrow is a gate that leads to salvation, and a few are that find it. Wide's the road that leads to life. Many enter through that. So it has to be some. God foreknew some. Who were they? I think there's two key verses. Again, we touched on this just a little bit, but if you're going to say, don't need to necessarily turn there, but I want to read them to you. John 10, 26. How do we know God? It had to be that he foreknew us first. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. It doesn't say you're not among my sheep because you don't believe. It says you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. Exact same switched in Acts 13, 48. Acts 13, 48, these are just two huge verses on this topic, I believe. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. He doesn't say as many who believed were appointed to eternal life. He says it the other way. As many who were appointed, that's the group that believes. God knows us first, and so we can know him um, because of that. Yeah, let, let me just, let's go back one more time to John 10. So turn there, if you're not there already, John 10. And I want, to, I want to labor this point just a little bit longer because I think this verse is astonishing in its clarity. Mm. Um, so, so look with me here. I'm going, to, I'm going to read the context one more time and just let you hear it one more time. Uh, John chapter 10, start here in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him, Jesus, and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And just pause here. Let's follow the logic of the conversation. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And they want uh, him to tell them clearly. And Jesus says, I've already done sufficient works and miracles to prove that I'm the Messiah. Like I've already done. So the feeding of the 5,000 was, uh, was, was a few chapters earlier. I've already done enough signs to give you enough evidence to, to convince you. But you're refusing to believe. This is just absolutely, you're, you're, you're not going to believe. And he gives the reason. And this is astonishing. So one more time, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just I, I one time, I, I don't, you know, you don't want to be 
too intense about this stuff all the time, okay? You don't want to get in people's grill and, 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 and uh, you know, on, at Thanksgiving at the dinner table, you don't want to necessarily bring this one up. But uh, there is a time and a place to have a, a real friendly, lively dis- discussion and about these kinds of things. And, and there was a friend of mine, I won't say his name, uh, who was a, a youth pastor in the area, and we were close friends, still are close friends, and we met. And he was definitely on the Arminian side, I was definitely on the Calvinist side, and we had this... Uh, intense, but you know, it's an intense discussion, but at the end you, you shake hands and you're friends, you know, it's not like a, you're mad at each other, but we went back and forth. And I remember in his office at the church, I remember writing on the board, again, I would not do this every day in a discussion on this topic, but it, was, it seemed like the right time to, to really uh, put pressure him on this point. I wrote John 10, 26 on the board in his room. I remember this, right? Expo board. I wrote, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I wrote that on the board. And I said, according to your theology, you would have said, you are not a sheep because you don't believe, right? So what determines whether or not you're a sheep is whether or not you believe. If you believe, you become a sheep. If you don't believe, you're not a sheep. But Jesus says, no, it's the opposite. Whether or not you're a sheep in eternity past by God's choice determines whether or not you believe. And these people, the Pharisees, Jesus says, you're not believing in me because you're not a sheep. If you were a sheep, you would hear my voice, you would know me, you would follow me, you would never be snatched out of my hand because Jesus believed in eternal security of the true saints. And so I I asked my friend, how would you explain this verse? Because in your theology, you would say it exactly the opposite of how Jesus said it. You know, the first thing he said, and you, you, you know you're heading in a bad direction when this is your first defense. It must be a bad translation. That's what he said. So you, you can look it up, go on BibleHubRight.com and look up John 10, 26. Every single one of the 40 whatever English translations translates this verse the same way. Okay, there, there's no other translation. So you can look it up in the Greek, you can go read commentaries. This verse is accurately translated. You, are, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And so my friend and I went back and forth for half an hour about that verse. And at the end of the day, he thought, I just, I, it can't mean that. That's what he said. It just can't mean that. It just, what about John three sixteen? What about these other verses? It just can't mean that. Well, a year later, uh, he, he came to believe it. So he has he shifted on it. It took about a year of wrestling with this topic. He went back and read commentaries, listened to sermons, and a lot of people poured into him. Uh, Piper and MacArthur were two big guys for him, but he listened to a lot of people, and over time, he came to believe in the doctrines of grace and has completely changed his worldview in his 40s over this issue. So, um, But I, I think verses like this are worth not just trying to wiggle out of, but seriously staring at them and saying, is Jesus really saying what it sounds like he's saying? You don't believe because you're not my sheep. So th- those are the kind of texts, I think, that, that, are, that bring some clarity on this issue. Thoughts on, on that verse, Greg? Well, I mean, we, we talked about it last week. You just handled it really well. And I think it gets down to, do we really want to submit to Scripture? And I mean, and I don't say that to like score like a point against Armenians, because I, I believe most folks who would disagree with us, they, they want to be faithful to the text. Like, I, I don't doubt that they want the Bible to be their foundation. But Scripture is going to make us uncomfortable when it pushes up against our presupposition and our preconceived ideas of what it's saying. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I love what you said there. It's like, it just can't mean that. Well, that means you want something other than what Scripture says in that moment. You can, I mean, he could see clearly what it said. He just didn't want to accept it. And I mean, guys, that's the thing. Like, we have to pray, I think, with stuff like this. God, make me to have a willing, receiving spirit to what your word teaches. Um, because it's go- we're going to have times where we're going to come across things. It's like, that is really clear, and I just don't like it. Let's just be honest. Sometimes we don't like it. And you can be saved and still say that, I think. God is very 
patient with us in our sanctification. But we, we can get to a point where we say, I just don't like that. Um, and we need to pray, God, make me receive it, even if it's hard to swallow at first. And so I, I've known folks, it's like, look, I, it's clear that's what it's teaching. I don't really like it, but I can't deny it. I mean, that's better than, than trying to say, well, it obviously doesn't teach what it's clearly teaching. But we pray. And I mean, it, it's not just for this issue, but I mean, on a daily basis. I mean, God, make me want to do what your word says. Make me receive what your word teaches, even if it's hard. God's faithful to do that over time, but we have to be faithful to pray that as well. Um, you know, it, it's important for us not to just look at this and step back and be like, well, if God wants me to believe that, he'll make me believe it. Like you said all the time, keep searching, keep studying, keep praying. I mean, if you're not convinced on this, wrestle with, with John 10, 26. Wrestle with it. And, and show, show us how it says something other than what it's saying. And I think you're going to find it doesn't. And here's the thing. Once you start to see it in one place, all the arguments that, that we have against all these other verses, they start to be like, wait a minute. If it's clearly teaching it here, it might just be teaching it clearly other places too. And you go back and you start to see Scripture in a whole new light and glory opens up, especially on, on these issues. And Greg, don't you think it's just very humbling? Oh, it absolutely. Well, and I think you know, that's what we don't want to let go of. I think, I think you're right. It's this, the, the pride in me kind of wants to say I can't be, but that is a very humbling thing to think about God made us his sheep, that's why we believe. Did we believe? We sure did, but it was only due to his work first. His foreknowledge predestined, called us, justified us, and then soon to be glorified. That's good. Um, well, we can start dealing with some objections. I, think we I mean, that, that's a good place to go. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Um, because, again, we can say this clearly, but, you know, you can see it, but then stuff comes up, and you're like, well, what about, or what about... Um, and, and one thing we've mentioned this before is we're kind of going into this that I want to I say again. Scripture is consistent. It doesn't contradict. Okay, so we can't, right. whatever our position, we do not want to get in the place where we're using one Bible verse to kind of cancel out another Bible verse. Okay, we, we don't want to do right. that. Scripture isn't, you know, sometimes we got to wrestle with the connections and that's okay, but we don't want to like get a, a text like, John 10, 26, but John 3, 16. Oh, so Jesus was wrong here because right. of John 3, 16. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we don't want to do that. Like, that's a very dangerous, and it's, you know, I, I, it's one of those things we can fall into that and not realize it and handle other texts faithfully, but we don't want to ever get in the pattern of, like, using one scripture to cancel out another scripture. God is consistent. He didn't get confused. He didn't get, you know, mixed up. He wasn't suffering a, you know, a, an, a moment that you get like when you get really old and God's really old. So maybe he just had a moment and he didn't realize what he was saying. No, scripture is going to be consistent. And so when someone, when you, when you have a doctrine that you believe and you, you have studied it and you're like, man, I really see scripture teaching this, there's going to be objections come up and people say, well, how does that line up with what it says here, here, or here? Right. And so we don't need to be afraid to look at texts of scripture. It's that's God's what word. theology is, is, yeah. is figuring out how scripture fits together. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely. The whole process. And so there are, there's at least three big texts that often come up when we get to this issue of unconditional election. Okay, one is Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Another one is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. And the third is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Okay, 
Um, and the, these three that, and it's in obviously John three sixteen is thrown in there a lot too. Um, but these three are brought up and it's almost like that's the trump card against unconditional election, against the whole, you know, the whole tulip, all that we're saying about God's sovereignty and salvation. Well, we've got these three verses that just trump everything you're saying. And it's like, well, if scripture is clearly teaching the sovereignty of God, like it is in salvation, in election, that it's not based on anything we do, that it's not based on foreseen faith or foreseen works, but because God chooses to know us, to love us, to appoint us to be his people ahead of time, um, and therefore we believe when he draws us, if it clearly teaches that, then we need to go to these verses and say, okay, God's not going to contradict himself, so let's do the hard work of looking at both and seeing what's going on and seeing what the connection is. Maybe there's something in this one that I haven't seen before. Maybe there's something over here that I haven't seen before. Thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think that Jesus still can have a disposition of desiring all to be saved without electing to save all. And this has got to be understood. God can desire that some, God can have a will of command that everyone in the world repent and believe the gospel. That, that, that is true. God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. That's in Acts 17. So God's commanded will for all the human race is to repent and believe. And that is God's command. It, it is urged upon you. And anyone who refuses it, it is their own fault morally that they do not re repent and believe. God can have that real will of command for all of humanity to repent and believe. And at the same time, God can have a deeper commitment that does not lead him to choose to unconditionally elect and save every single individual. And if that sounds like double talk, which it, it may to some people, that may sound like double talk. Like, is God schizophrenic? He desires one thing and then desires another thing, and it seems like there's conflict in God? No, no, no. I, I, don't, I don't think so. So, so let, me, let me try to explain this a little bit. Um, okay, put, put, it, put it this way. We, we talked a few weeks ago about how God hates all sin, and God commands that we never sin, right? Yet does God... So just one example... God's will is that we not murder. That should be pretty non-controversial, right? That's God's commanded will, that we should not murder. And what did Acts 4.27 say? Jesus, in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So Jesus being murdered was against God's commanded will, obviously. And yet it was according to God's sovereign will right? Those two things can be true at the same time. Uh, God, uh, Job killing, uh, excuse me, Satan killing Job's children was against God's commanded will. It was a sin for Job. Uh, sorry, sin for Satan to kill Job's children. But did God have a purpose for it? Yes, he allowed him to do it, right? On purpose. So we, we always talk about God's will these two different ways. What was God's will for Pharaoh? His commanded will for Pharaoh was, let my people go right? And yet it said, I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. So his commanded will was let my people go. His will of sovereignty was I'm not, I'm going to harden his heart so he won't let the people go. So you see these two levels, okay? It is very similar with regards to salvation itself. God can command all people everywhere to repent and yet not choose at the end of the day to save every single individual. Those two things are part and parcel of what I think scripture teaches about God. And um, let me just add a footnote here. If someone is an Arminian and they say, I really don't like what you just said, I would say, okay, you do understand that you have the exact same problem that we do, right? So let's just say you're an Arminian and you believe that God, is, is, God desires every single individual to be saved. That's God's aim. If that's what you believe. You have the exact same problem that, that, that we all do, don't you? 
Because here's what you would say if you're an Arminian. You would say, God wants to save every single human being, correct? God wants to save every single human being. And yet, at the end of the day, is every human being saved? No. So, so think, even if you're an Arminian, you believe God desires to save every individual, but at the end of the day, chooses not to, right? And what's the reason God must have a deeper commitment than his desire to save all, even in the Arminian system? What's God's deeper commitment in Arminianism? God has an unswerving commitment to preserve human libertarian free will. And so because God is so committed to, human, to, to preserving human libertarian free will, he's going to let a lot of people go to hell over that issue. So even though God desires to save every individual, because of God's desire to preserve free will, a lot of people are going to go to hell, and God, God is going to let that happen. Why? Because God's deeper commitment in saving every person is not violating human free will, right? So no matter what view you take, you've got the same problem. God desires to save everybody, and at the end of the day, he doesn't save everybody. And but from our perspective, I think we have a much more richly biblical answer to why God doesn't save everybody. The Arminian answer is, God wishes he could save you, but he's trying as hard as he can, and gosh darn it, he can't save you because your libertarian free will resists God to, to your death, and he can't save you. So that, that's one reason. But the other reason, I think it's a richly biblical reason, is this. God does have a real desire for all to be saved. He commands everybody to be saved, but at the end of the day, God's commitment not to libertarian free will, which I don't think exists, I think God's commitment to his own glory is the reason why he hardens the Egyptians and drowns them so that he can display his glory and power over them in wrath. And he saves his elect people, Israel, so that he can glory over them in mercy and grace. So God wants to show off the full panorama of his perfections and glories, which includes mercy, grace, love, forgiveness to Israel, and wrath, power, judgment towards Egypt. God wants to show off all of who he is. So we, we all have the same problem. God desires to save all and doesn't. The question is why? You either have to say he wants to preserve human libertarian free will, or he wants to display his glory in all of its perfections. And if you're going to ask which of those two answers is more biblical, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I think God's glory is the, is, is the biblical answer from beginning to end of the canon. Jerry, Jerry thoughts on that whole idea? Yeah, no, well, I think the one thing that you could, if you were going to rebut all that, you would say, well, then if God's the one that does that, then how could he still blame man? And there is a mystery to that. Right? Because Paul asks that in Romans 9 and goes into the pot and the, and the potter, the potter and the pot. But also, we know in Romans 1 and Romans 2, the first verse of Romans 2, that um, God has shown man. And at the end of verse 20 in Romans 1, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, having clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And so man is without excuse. We can't say, oh, what we're hearing about God is that God's completely in control. He's just made robots or whatever we're going to say. So it's his fault if, guys, if people are, are, are going to hell. And that is not scriptural. We see that man has no excuse. The unbelievers there, the Gentiles, in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves. The Jews didn't either have an excuse. And so uh, both are true in Scripture, and there is a tension there. And, uh, and I think we're encouraging, we need to be encouraged to say we have to be all right with that tension and, uh, and believe all that Scripture says. I'm going to offer one more thought um of rebuttal on this too. You know, we talked about the Armenian has the same problem. They also do in another way. 
Um, because every, everybody agrees and believes that God knows everything. Like in terms of factual understanding, comprehension, he knows everything past, present, future. Nobody's going to disagree with that. You disagree with that, you're not a Christian. Okay? Um, that's open theism. That's dangerous. God, the future is not open to God. He knows it exhaustively. He understands it. He, he sees it. All of that, he knows it exhaustively, okay, imperfectly. Now, here's the thing. Everybody's also going to agree that the universe we live in is the one God chose to create, meaning he, in all his knowledge of everything is understanding, he could have created something different to go differently. So if you're going to say that it's ultimately up to us whether or not we're saved, then we can charge the Arminian with saying what? Well, in another universe, person A over here would have been saved and not person B, but because in this other plan that God knew, person B and C would be saved. So that's two more than one. And so person A gets left out. And so either way, because they'll say, oh, you, it's, it's not fair. They don't even have a chance. Well, in the Arminian system, there's a lot of people that don't have a chance because God knew they weren't going to believe and he created a universe in which he knew they weren't going to believe. So there's no chance for them in that universe either. Does that mean? It, it's, so here's the thing. It, that's why we just want to go back to scripture. What are the categories? What is the sequence? What is the structure? How does scripture itself piece it together? And that's where we land. Okay, we, 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 we've, yes, philosophy can be useful and we deal with different terms and stuff like that, but ultimately, Scripture is the final authority. We subject our philosophical reasoning to the clear statements of Scripture, not the other way around. We have to remember that, okay? Um, and so let our philosophy be, be what it will, but let it be rooted in Scripture. Well, can I jump off that yeah. very point? To turn with me for a second to Matthew 11. And we'll get here, well, it'll probably be a few months, but we'll get here eventually on a Sunday uh, for our sermon, But uh, Lord willing. But Matthew 11, th this has always fascinated me, and I just want to read this real, real quickly, because there's two different points here that I think are very significant to what we're talking about. So Matthew 11, start with, start with me, verse 20. Now, remember, these cities he's going to name are the little cities in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, like Capernaum and Chorazon, Bethsaida. And these are the places where Jesus spent most of his ministry and where he did most of his miracles. So these are the people who knew Jesus better than anybody on the planet. And let's listen to what Jesus says to them. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For, now listen to this. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. Those are two port cities a little bit further up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, this is Peter's hometown, right? And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, what? It would have remained until this day. Now, do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus, you're talking about knowing what could happen in another world. Jesus says, okay, listen, had I gone and done the miracles I did for you, had I gone and done them in Sodom and Gomorrah 2,000 years ago, that city would still be standing today, which means people would have repented in that city and believed because Tyre and Sidon, he says they would have repented. Sodom would have still be standing. Do you see the implications of that verse? That's amazing. You hear, what, you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus knew that, he says, if I would have gone and done miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah, that city would not have been judged. People would have repented. That city would still exist 2,000 years later. But did God send a miracle worker to Sodom and Gomorrah to do that? No. Do, do you see the implications of that verse? 
God could have done something that would have resulted in the mass conversion of the people in Sodom, and he didn't do it. <laughs> I'm not making this up. That's Jesus, right? Had these miracles been done in Sodom, that city would still be standing. But I didn't do those miracles there. God could have. Did God owe Sodom a miracle worker? No, he owed them destruction. If he would have given them a miracle worker, it would have been infinite, infinitely more grace than Sodom and Gomorrah deserved. But God gave them justice. And there's no argument that that was wrong. He gave them precisely what they deserved. He couldn't find 50, 40, 35, 30, 25, 20, 15, 10 righteous people in Sodom. All he could find was Lot. And he's, I mean, he's technically righteous, but, uh, but he, he had some issues. And, and God, God rescues Lot and his daughters, but the city perishes. But here, here you can clearly see God could have rescued the city, but did not. And here we see unconditional election. We see God's sovereign choice over what he does. And God is not wronging anyone. If he gives mercy to one, that's better than that person deserves. If he gives justice to another, that's exactly what that person deserves. No one can argue that God is being unjust. Just, it's not, it's not an option here. Uh, and so I, I think texts like this really shed light on, on, on this issue. Thought, thoughts on that or, or another passage? Well, we, we need to see uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4, yes. 2 Peter 3, 9 real quick. Because uh, we mentioned those two as part of the big three, and it ties back into what you were saying uh, a little while ago about the you know God desiring all people to be saved and at the same time not ordaining that. Uh, let's read Second Timothy chapter two. And again, this is where because First Timothy. First Timothy chapter two. This is where context comes in. Context helps us understand how words are being used. Okay, First Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse one. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just pause right there. Okay, It seems like verse 4, all people. God desires all people. He wills that all people be saved. Who are they all people? Is that every single person alive without any exception? Or is it all different kinds of people without distinction? So where context matters, look again at verse 1 and 2. He wants, the, the, he wants Timothy and the, the people in his church to pray for all people, for kings and all who are in authority. So he just gave categories of people, types of people, a kind of a person, a king, People in high positions. So he's thinking, because we're tended to think rulers can be corrupt. There's no hope for them. Think about our current experience here in our own country. Do you believe that those people can be saved? Because God commands you to pray for even people like that. Okay? That's the point of this, is what he's saying. All kinds of people. Jesus came to save all kinds of people. Even the people we would say are unsavable, are outside the possibility of grace and salvation. And so it's not talking about every person without exception. He's saying God's desire is that everyone of every standing in society, no matter where you fall on the social strata, God desires people even there to be saved. And what does that do to us? That says we don't withhold the gospel from anyone. If, that, if any text pushes us to not withhold the gospel from someone, it's a text like this. Because we don't know who God's chosen no matter where they are, what they've done, what they're doing, we preach Jesus to them. Why? Because they might get saved. They might come to faith. 
And as he goes to verse 5, there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Again, the all here is a reference. Look, for all kinds of people, not just for the Jews, not just for the poor, for everyone, for all kinds of people, all kinds of people. Okay. Any thoughts to add to that? Do we have time for Second Peter? Two forty-seven. Um, we can we can go there real quick. We can go real quick. All right, Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. I'll let Mark take this one. Oh man, uh, I have to say I I'm not sure how to interpret this verse. Uh, there there are two ways to interpret this verse, and there are solid reform commentators that take it both ways. Uh, in the last 24 hours, I've been challenged by Greg that I might be wrong about my former interpretation, and I'm actually leaning towards the way Greg has been pushing me on this one because it makes a lot of sense in context. But be, be, before I read it, I want to say this. Whichever way you take this verse, it doesn't change anything in terms of your theology of God's sovereignty. So uh, here's the way I've normally taken the verse. I've taken the way it's popularly interpreted, and I've always interpreted it this way until the last 18 hours. So I'm, I may be changing my mind. But, but the way I've always taken it is this. If you look at um, verse 9... The Lord, this is 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, there are super solid Reformed commentators like Tom Schreiner, P Piper leans this way, who take this as referring to every single individual. God desires uh, here, uh, he is not willing that any should perish. And that's what I've always thought this verse meant. And I got no problem believing that as a Calvinist, no problem at all. I think God does desire all to be saved, but I'm not sure that's what this verse actually is referring to in context. And I don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. Let's look real quick. I'm, I'm going to skip phrases to make it make shorter, but look at verse one. The question is, who is the you that he's talking to? Verse one of chapter three. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you. He's talking to believers, by the way. Uh, in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you, that's the churches, the believers, should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of, our, uh, of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day following their own sinful desires. You see verse 4, they. So now the scoffers are a they. The Christians are you. The scoffers are they. You follow that? The believers are you. The non-Christians are they, okay? Now, just follow this here. This is very interesting to me as of the last 18 hours. Uh, they, will say, they, the non-Christians, will say, where is the promise of his coming? Verse 5, for they, unbelievers, deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, etc. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that are now stored up are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. That's the they, right? The unbelievers. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. He's talking to Christians, right? Beloved, you. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, the Christians, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness like the unbelievers, but is patient toward you. Who's you? The believers, God's elect, God's people, and not wishing that any should perish. Any who? Any of you, God's people, should perish. But that all, that is all of you, all of God's people, should repent, should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Verse 13, but according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens. We, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, etc. You see, the you and the we is the Christians. The they and the scoffers are the unbelievers, the ungodly. He says, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all reach repentance. 
That's a very strong contextual argument. So thank you, Greg, for that. It's a very strong contextual argument that God is actually referring to the elect as the not wishing that any of you should perish. So I may have changed my mind as of last night, but uh, either way you take this verse doesn't change anything about unconditional election because God still desires, in in a sense, the salvation of all, but chooses to save uh, only the elect, uh, which again, both sides have the same problem. It's how you resolve the problem that makes the difference. Can you pray for us, Jerry? Yes, sir. Father, we are certainly humbled by um, these texts and uh, many more that we were not able to cover. Uh, Lord, what a gracious God you are, um, that from eternity past, um, you foreknew, you predestined, um, and then called us um, so that we could be justified and uh, soon to be glorified. We long for that day. We pray that this uh, discussion um, brought you glory, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart has been pleasing in your sight, and we uh, commit the service to you as well in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.